Hi, this is Think Digital Futures. I am Miles Herbert. Before we get started today, I just wanted to let you know this episode contains descriptions and conversations alluding to domestic and partner violence. Throughout this piece, gendered language is used to reflect the fact that the majority of perpetrators of domestic violence are men. I know that both men and women, including those in same-sex relationships, may be perpetrators, but the language used in this podcast reflects the majority of cases. Okay, now for the show. In Australia, domestic violence is a problem. According to the Australian Institute for Health and Welfare, one in six women have experienced violence by a cohabitating partner since age 15. And while partner and family violence is commonly referred to as domestic violence and often thought to happen only in the home, more and more women are experiencing this type of abuse somewhere else. Smart tech being used to torment victims of domestic abuse. Most of us use cell phones like this to stay connected, but if you are a domestic violence victim, it could actually be Phone keeping you... Phone calls and texts that don't stop. Online tracking and spying in this digital age... Cell phones and social media are quickly becoming tools of the trade for stalkers. How can technology be used for abusive purposes? My experience with the women I interviewed was that there's quite a diversity of ways that it might be used. This is Heather Douglas. I am a professor of law based at the T.C. Burns School of Law at the University of Queensland. For the last two years, Heather has worked on a project called Using Law and Leaving Domestic Violence. Under that project, I've interviewed 65 women about their experiences of domestic and family violence. And in the context of that, they've told me a lot about the abuse they've experienced as well. So some women reported that their partners had been tracking them via GPS through their mobile phones or through their children's mobile phones. One of the ways a woman would uh, ensure that she avoided as much as possible having contact with her abuser was to allow her child to have a mobile phone that was just for communicating with the child's usually father. One woman reported to me that the father had put a GPS tracking device on the child's phone so that when they were turning up at friends' houses or relatives' houses, he he would be telling them he knew where they were and, and so clearly he was using this device to track them. In a 2015 survey of more than 500 domestic violence workers, 98% said they had clients who had experienced technology-facilitated abuse. The father gave the child a doll. Later, on another contact visit, the father said he knew where they were living and he disclosed the shelter address. And that was a breach of security, so they had to move into a new shelter. And it happened again. He said, I know where you're living, I know the address that you're living in. And so they moved in with a friend and basically were couch surfing with a friend. And again, it happened. And on this last occasion, Ingrid just thought it might be the doll. And she opened up the back of the doll unpicked the clothing at the back and found that there was a tracking device within the doll. Family and partner violence is often about control. The abuse of power is used to control victims, even after separation. 
and the digital technologies we carry with us every day can create a sense of the perpetrator's omnipresence, further isolating their victims and further eroding their feelings of safety and comfort. In other cases, people talked about uh, cameras being used. Susan reported that her partner had uh, set up cameras throughout the house. Another woman also talked about how cameras had been secretly installed. They would move around as she was coming out of the shower or other times where she might be lying on her bed or breastfeeding. So she'd also been monitored with these cameras inside the house. Other women talked about listening devices being placed around the house and well. finding them and smashing them, but other times not knowing that they were there and their partners coming home at night and uh, taking these listening devices out of their hiding places and playing them back. Some women also re- reported their sexual activities being recorded. Her partner taking photographs of her naked and sending these photographs to the woman's father. She felt that was incredibly demeaning and um, really suffered, she felt, as a result of that. These recordings of their activity then later, after separation, being used as a kind of extortion or bargaining chip, maybe in relation to family law proceedings or not trying to apply for a protection order and so on. So if almost any technology can be used for abusive purposes. And the tech in our hands that keeps us all connected is not going away. How are we keeping up with the changing landscape? And are we doing enough to help victims? That's coming up on Think Digital Futures. I am Miles Herbert. Stay with us. I must say that in some circumstances, these aren't entirely new. So the idea of stalking someone or using a sexual image is not a new thing. We've seen it for a very long period of time, but technology makes that easier and less likely to be able to control it once it happens. And so it's taken it to another dimension, another kind of experience. And the most fundamental thing that women complain about is it creates this sort of omnipresence. You can never get away because you've got your phone with you 24 hours a day. So even if you've escaped the relationship, it's just there in your face. This is Jane Wangman from the Faculty of Law at the University of Technology, Sydney. And my expertise is in the area of domestic violence and the law. I've been a legal practitioner. I've been involved in law reform. And now I'm an academic doing research in the area. How common is it? It is relatively common if you talk to people. So whether it's from lots and lots of text messages to being stalked and followed, you see it quite commonly. So you might not see it necessarily in criminal law matters where there might not be as many prosecutions, but you'll see a lot in family law files where they talk about those other mechanisms of control that come across in family law cases. These products are developed to make our life easier. So you'll have your smartphone, you'll have your laptop and you'll have your mobile device and they're all connected so you can pick up one and do your work wherever you are. But perpetrators have been able to tap into that easiness of being your messages being linked across three devices to be able to track people, to know where they are and so on. So this thing that was meant to make life easier has also made perpetrators' ability to stalk and know everything about you also easier. 
In the age of social media, perpetrators can devastate their partner or ex-partner psychologically, socially, and financially from a safe distance of anonymity on platforms like Facebook and Twitter. This might mean revenge porn, stalking, or just spreading rumors about victims till their reputation is sufficiently damaged. Such pervasive and intimate abuses of trust can further isolate victims from their social support groups. They might feel compelled to close down or withdraw altogether from social media. So this is one of the key tensions here because some people might say to women, well, just get off Facebook, you know, stop using WhatsApp, you know, then you'll be free of these things. That really just satisfies all the control and isolation that the perpetrator wanted to, to happen in terms of controlling their lives. We also know that social media can perform an important function of connecting people with friends and family or information and services. So we do need to work out a way in which it does both the good things in terms of giving people freedom to associate with people that they want to, but also works to protect them for people that want to misuse that media. In July of this year, Facebook revealed that more than 800,000 users were affected by a bug that allowed users they had blocked to see their content and communicate with them through Messenger. Facebook apologized for the bug and said they understand how important blocking someone may be. And while 800,000 people is just a tiny fraction of the 2.2 billion Facebook user base, that is still a sizable number of affected people who may have been subject to unwanted interactions, ranging from awkward exchanges to feelings of anxiety and panic. They encourage you to say where you are at a particular time, like that's meant to be something you're meant to share. Here I am at this restaurant, look what I'm eating. They encourage you to tag your friends, all of these things which impinge on the possibilities of safety. And so, yes, I would say that they do have a responsibility to ensure that when someone has blocked certain people, then that that is maintained. So what happens if you just want all this to go away? You have to obtain an apprehended violence order in order for it to provide you with protection. And to get an order, there's a range of different types of things that you might have experienced in order to say that you require protection. An apprehended violence order, or an AVO, is an order made by a court against a person who makes you fear for your safety to protect you from further violence or harassment. And so one of those things might be stalking or intimidation. And whether it is happening online, in real life, or both. Usually people can point to a range of behaviours. So they're not only experiencing the use of technology as a form of abuse, but they have usually experienced other things like emotional or physical violence or whatever. But when it comes to enforcing AVOs, things can get tricky. And I would really encourage people to make sure that they really nail down what it is in terms of the behaviour that they're experiencing. AVOs can be tailor-made to your circumstances. You can specify 
you do not want the perpetrator contacting you through Facebook or other social media platforms. But sometimes, even if the order says not to contact the victim in any way, shape or form. Some offenders or defendants aren't quite clear what that means and don't really appreciate that social media and following your friends through social media might also be a way in which they contact you. And while data and technology can be used against them to identify intimate and personal behaviors of victims, they might be able to identify the perpetrator's patterns of abuse, violence and control as well. Yes, yes, it, I mean, it does, but it's also proving very difficult for them too. That's coming up on Think Digital Futures. I am Miles Herbert. So how can this data actually help? What's the other side of this double-edged sword? Well, I think being technology savvy is really important. This is Heather Douglas again from the T.C. Byrne School of Law at the University of Queensland. Women reported to me that they both used their telephones, their mobile phones, to record their partners, but also that their partners used their mobile phones to record them and in some circumstances that they felt that was a sort of form of abuse. But by the same token, some of the women I interviewed actually similarly recorded conversations with their partners or incidents involving their partners without their partner's consent as a way of gathering evidence to to prove an aspect of their case to a court. For some reason, and it continues to amaze me, is that people don't seem to think that when you type a threat in a text message, that it's a threat and it operates the same way as if you verbally threatened someone. And whilst it might be disturbing for to ask women to save and document those things rather than simply delete them, because they, particularly if they've come from the person's number and it's easily identifiable, they serve as evidence in a, in a way that a he said, she said kind of scenario where it's purely verbal, was harder to prove, for obvious reasons. So even though it may be traumatic for victims of violence to save, document, and in the end, produce archives of digital abuse in court, the traces left by the abuser may be enough to satisfy the court's burden of proof. When smartphones or mobile devices first became popular and I was then a solicitor in court and we would get lots of text messages and it was almost as though people didn't realise that that was a threat and that was a piece of evidence that I now had that I could bring into court. If it's come from their number, it's actually strengthened the ability to run a case because here I can suggest very strongly that it was this person that sent it. The problem comes where they haven't used their own phone or they've tried to hide their IP address and it becomes very difficult to prove who did it. Even when a victim says there is no one else in the world who could have done this but the perpetrator, even if the abuse matches a broader pattern of systemic abuse by their partner. It can be very difficult for law enforcement to put all the dots together to prove that. So the kind of anonymity that the internet provides can sometimes be a hindrance in enforcing these AVOs? It can be, yep.
It is often hard for law enforcement to get companies to release information about their users, even if they are stalking and harassing other people on their platforms. So some of internet providers and some of the app providers uh, are overseas, and in order to get them to comply with some of the requests for information might cost the police both money and resources in order to get the evidence together because they're not necessarily doing that information sharing easily. And a breached AVO, relatively speaking, is a minor penalty. It is certainly not a minor experience for the victim and in fact can be very traumatic. But the effort it takes to track down information from certain social platforms may be putting police, who see it as only a small infraction, off of the chase. So whether it's worth doing the amount of work that might be required for some of the breaches might be part of the equation. So while there is another side, and the benefits of technology might outweigh the positives, being able to record your perpetrator doesn't instantly stop the societal issues that perpetuate family and partner violence. And digital records of your experience don't destroy the systemic power structures that contribute to its continued underreporting. Thanks for listening to Think Digital Futures. If you or anyone you know needs help please reach out and talk to someone. You can call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or 1-800-RESPECT. That's 1-800-737-732. There is a website called, um, so it's www.smartsafe.org.au. So if people are interested in the laws that apply, they've got a map of Australia and you can go in and click on that state and see what criminal laws apply, whether there's any surveillance offences, tracking offences and so on within your jurisdiction. Um, And they give examples of the type of behaviour that might fall within that offence. So it's quite a useful sort of legal database for people to go and have a look at and say, oh, I'm not sure if mine fits within the protection order legislation or the criminal order legislation on this SmartSafe um, website. So I'd recommend that. Do you want to say the URL one more time? So it's www.smartsafe.org.au and it was developed by the Domestic Violence Resource Centre in Victoria. Think Digital Futures is made in partnership by 2SCR and the University of Technology, Sydney. Today's show was produced on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, whose sovereignty was never ceded. Thank you to Dr. Heather Douglas and Dr. Jane Wangman for their help with this episode. If you liked the show, you can rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help other people find the show. I have been Miles Herbert. I'll catch you guys again next week.